How was your Thanksgiving? Good. Mine was excellent as well. Uh, for the first time, we went out of town. We went to Seaside with Robin's family, uh, and it was awesome. I, it was just so much fun. There was almost 30 members of her family there, and there was hardly any drama, uh, so, which is really, it's few and far between when that actually happens, uh, so it's, it was good. Uh, we had, the only downfall was that there was some sniffling and some snuffing. The kids are sick. Both Robin and I end up being sick. Uh, other than that, uh, Thanksgiving was super good. Uh, and there's, of course, there's so many things for us to be thankful for. Uh, Robin is my wife. I have two kids, and they're going to be up here. Uh, that's Nina, and that's Max. Max's face uh, was making me laugh so hard last night. Uh, he, basically, his face, when I look at it, it looks exactly like what his personality is. He's just the goofiest kid, uh, and he's a bit of a handful right now. Uh, so there's Nina. Nina's six. Max is three. Uh, we have a dog. Her name is Iris, and we have a cat, and her name's Ava. And my kids have fallen in love with another member of our family, and her name <clears throat> is Mingo. Uh, Nina named her, uh, it's short for Flamingo, uh, and she is a she because Nina told me specifically that all white trucks are girls, uh, and they have absolutely fallen in love with Mingo. Now, Mingo is a 1982 pickup truck, and it's my daily driver. Like, I drive it all the time. Uh, it is beat up, and it is just so bad. Uh, it leaks like crazy, so it smells all musty, and there's always water on the floor. Uh, there's, uh, it's missing one windshield wiper that you can see. It's all rusted out, so at night you can see the, the headlights from the cars behind you on the floorboard <laughs> of the passenger side. Uh, it has issue after issue, but my kids love her, and they think so highly of Mingo. So what I started to do for the last couple of weeks was I wrote down some quotes from my kids about Mingo. Okay, this is Nina. She gets in, she goes, oh, it smells so good in here. It smells like work. I don't even know really what that means, but let me tell you something. It does not smell good in Mingo. Uh, this is something that they say over and over and over again. Wow, Dad, Mingo is so fast. It is not. It is the slowest thing on the road. I'm telling you right now, it is so bad. Uh, Mingo is so cute. Uh, Mingo is so sweet, and they, when they say Mingo is sweet, they don't mean like, wow, that's a sweet truck. They mean like she is kind and she is nice. They give kisses to Mingo on the grill, on her face, uh, right? So, and they got me saying it too, like, yeah, Mingo's a sweet truck. <laughs> uh, this is another one. The older Mingo gets, the better she is. Uh, she, so she's over 300,000 miles. That is, I wish that was true. That is not true. Uh, and this is by far my favorite one. Mingo's making a funny noise. She must be happy. <laughs> and she is making some crazy noises. So just because my kids think something about Mingo does not make it true. And the same is true for us. Just because we think it does not make it so. In your, in your uh, notes, in your handout, uh, there's a whole list of things that we've already gone over in the book of Philippians that are contrary a lot of times with our own opinion, with our own thinking, a lot of times even contrary to our own culture or our society, right? But that does not make it so that is not true. 
For truth, we depend on the Word of God. For truth, we depend on His Spirit to lead us into this truth. The passage today, there's a lot of incorrect thinking about our passage today. There has been over the years a lot of misinterpretation about our passage. God, what God has for us today is truth because it comes from his word. It doesn't come from me. It doesn't come from some sort of like, I didn't try to to drum up some of my opinions about any of these things. I searched the word and I prayed to God. And what God has today is his truth. And we have to make sure that we don't try to take truth from scripture and squeeze it and massage it and manipulate it into a mold, force it into a mold formed by our own mind so that we somehow manufacture truth, right? To be something that is what isn't. It's very important, right? So our passage is only two verses, but there is so much in there. I kept having to cross things out and redo it uh, because I was like, man, I'm going to bore these people with like an hour and a half long sermon, and that would not work out well. My boss would be upset with me. Uh, So Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 are the two verses that we're going to go over. Paul just started at the beginning of chapter 2 talking about uh, unity in the body, talking about humility in us. He uses Jesus as an example. Uh, Last week, the last couple weeks, Bob has been talking about what he calls uh, the Christological centerpiece of the book and possibly of the entire New Testament. We just got done with that, and it was fantastic. I don't know if you guys agree with me or not, but it was so, it's been so good. It's been motivating for me. It's been convicting for me. Uh, and I just I feel like I'm thirsty for more, which is good because Paul has more. He has powerful things for us in the next couple of verses uh, that require us to scrutinize and compare these things with our own opinions, to scrutinize these things and compare them to our culture and make sure that we are adjusting our opinions to the Word of God. Before we go on, let me pray for us. God, we desire your truth. The Bible says, Jesus, you are truth. And because of that, every word that you say and the word that we have before us this morning is truth. Help us to see you clearly this morning and prepare both our hearts and our minds for the truth of your scripture. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're going to use the passage as kind of our tour guide to be able to take out three main sections, and we're going to pull it uh, directly out of those verses. The first one is this. Work out, there it is, work out our salvation. Now, this is the one, this is the phrase that has been misinterpreted over the years. People see this and they begin to try to manipulate it and they don't look at the words, they don't look at the meaning, they don't look at the context. Uh, And I find that it has been misinterpreted over and over and over and over again. Let's first take a look at what it's not. Paul is not saying that we are in jeopardy of losing our salvation, and so therefore we need to work for it. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. There it is right there. This is a promise. 
Romans 8.15 says, You have received the spirit of adoption by whom you cry, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself bearing witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. The same Spirit that gives us a seal of our salvation, he testifies that we are his children. Would God unadopt us? Would he break his promises? Does he falsify his testimony? Absolutely not. Another thing that Paul is not saying is that God has only done part of the work in saving our souls, and that somehow that we have to do the rest of it, what he didn't do or what he couldn't do, and that's absolute nonsense. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. He also says that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one gets to the Father except by me. He doesn't say I and you. He doesn't say we together are the way, like some sort of collaboration with us and God for our salvation. No. Philippians 1, Paul says, he who began a good work, he who began a good work in you, he will complete it. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works. If it didn't take your works to get you saved, then it's silly to think that a lack of works or bad works would make you unsaved. See, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. If you have confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God rose him from the dead, then you are his. And there's nothing you can do about it. And that is the greatest news of all time. So let's look instead of what Paul actually is saying and why he's saying it. Notice that he says work out. He doesn't use the work, he doesn't say work for, because work for assumes that the gift of God is imperfect, that it's lacking in some way, and that we need to do the rest to try to make up for it. No, he says work out, that salvation is something that God did in us. It was done in us, and we have experienced the saving grace of God. Work out then assumes that this act that he did in us to save us is complete, and it is perfect, and what needs to be done, what he has done inwardly, needs to be, and here's the key, to be worked out or displayed. That's what the word means. In Greek, the word work out means to work in order to bring about or bring to fruition or to display. And the verb that he uses is called present tense command, which basically means that Paul is saying that we shouldn't just work one time or part time but that we continue to work out, that we continue to bring to fruition, that we, be, that we continue to display what God has done inwardly. So what has God done in us? What exactly is it that he has done? A couple of weeks ago, you remember Bob talking about the cross and how the cross is the ultimate act of obedience and humility. And because of that, the cross is a symbol of his crowning achievement. You remember this? It's a beautiful thing. But for what purpose? So that through faith, because of his sacrifice, God forgives our sin. He removes it as far as the east is to the west. He gives us his righteousness. He makes us right before him. He makes us a holy people. And as a result, God's spirit takes up residency in us. He uses our body as a temple. He uses our heart as his throne. And what Jesus did on the cross is his crowning achievement. And what he does in us is his masterpiece. It's his work of art. 
So what God has worked in us, we are to work out. The beauty and the majesty and the amazing grace that he has done in us is to be displayed outwardly. His act of love and humility to redeem us and make a way to God is actually beyond words. When I was thinking about it and writing it, I could not put it all into words. It was all a feeling. It was just this overwhelming feeling about how, what amazing thing, all the works that he has done, this, what he's done in me is his masterpiece. When we think of amazing art, we think of things like Michelangelo's David. We think of Mona Lisa. We think of the, the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, right? And we applaud these things and we display them, and we sell tickets to see them, and we should, because as far as human beings go, this is, this is the best of our brilliance. This is the best of our skill. But making us alive in Christ, in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this is his perfect work of art. How much more, then, should it be displayed? How much more should it be revered? How much more should it be considered the greatest work ever done in the history of the universe. Do you believe it? It's absolutely true. What he has done in us is the greatest work ever done in the history of the universe. If you were a follower of Jesus, it does not matter what you think about yourself. The fact is that God has given you a new label. He's given you a new definition because of what God has done in you and Jesus. We then become his beloved. We are his children, and we can't change or add or take away from the masterpiece that he has created in us, but when we don't display it, when we don't work that out in our lives, then we cover it up. We hide it. And why would we ever do that? Why would we ever want to cover up that kind of beauty? Why would we ever want to cover up that kind of perfection? So Paul says that what God has done in you, the masterpiece that he's created in you, is to be displayed outwardly. And we shouldn't miss why he's saying it. Notice the very first word in our passage is therefore. So what's the therefore, therefore? It refers back to the first part of chapter 2, where he's talking about how we are to live among each other, the humility that we are to have, the example that he gives us in Christ. He says therefore, and then talks about their obedience. He says, therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence. So he's saying the church at Philippi, they were obedient to God's teaching while Paul was there. And when Paul left, they continued to be obedient to that. And what Paul is saying now, he's saying to continue down this path, continue down this path of obedience so that what is done in you could be displayed in its full splendor and its full glory to live it, among, live it out among each other in here. See, he hasn't changed gears at all. He's still talking about the same thing as he has been in chapter 2. Paul uses Christ as an example, and he uses it for a purpose in our passage, specifically. Jesus, his humility, it drove him to action. He didn't embrace humility just for humility's sake. In his humility... He emptied himself. He became a servant. He became obedient. He was born as a human being. He was obedient to the Father, even to the point of death, even death on a cross. His attitude of humility drove him to descend. It drove him to action. It drove him to die. And our attitude, Paul says, should be that of Christ. 
And as a result, we should be driven to action just like Christ. We should be driven to work out in our behavior and in our lives what he has done in us. So the humility of Christ is our example. The lordship of Christ, which could never be our example, right? The Lord God Almighty, he is not our example. He is our focus. And when we focus on the Lord, lordship of Jesus, there is wonder and there is amazement and there is more, which brings us to the second point. There's fear and trembling. Paul says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. The lordship of Christ, when we focus on that, there is fear and there is trembling. And it's exactly how it sounds. It's exactly how it sounds. The Greek word used here for fear is phobos. It's where we get our word phobia. It describes fright or terror. Greek word for trembling is tremos. It's where we get our word tremor, and it describes shaking from fear. See, Paul just said in verses 9 through 11 that Jesus was given the name that was above all names. He is Lord God Almighty. And Paul is like, this should cause us to something in us to stir the ascension to the throne room of heaven, it should cause us to pause. It should cause us to ponder and to think about that and how powerful God is, who he is, his holiness, his awesomeness. And chills, chills should begin to form when we think about his lordship, wonder and awe and reverence. And the Bible calls this the fear of the Lord. See, fear and trembling, they are natural outcomes of the focus, of the meditation, of the right thinking on the Lordship of Christ. I spent a good amount of time reading about this, praying about it, meditating on it, asking the Lord for wisdom with this. Uh, and this is what I found, and this is what God revealed to me, and it was nothing spectacular. That's right. It's nothing like revolutionary. It's very simple. But what I found is that if God is unlike anything else, then it makes sense that the fear of God would then be unlike anything else. The fear of the Lord is not like other fears that we have. Fears of created things like snakes or gravity, right? These things we're going to call these normal fears. And when we compare normal fears with the fear of the Lord, we find that there's a lot of things that are different. And I'm going to go through these rather quickly. Normal fear make us want to run away or fight or hide. The fear of the Lord, it makes us draw nearer to him, to abandon sin, make him love him and adore him and go to him. With normal fear, we can be frozen with fear or crippled with fear. But the fear of the Lord motivates us. It spurs us on to action. Noah, in Hebrews eleven seven, it says that Noah, in fear, did what? Sit around and wait for the storm to come? No, in holy fear, he built an ark. It motivates him to action. Normal fear can a lot of times be based on irrational thought and make us do irrational things. Now, some fears are totally rational, right? If you've ever heard uh, the rattlesnake tale, it's terrifying, and it should be because it is dangerous. Or you see a grizzly bear. That is a, that's a scary thing, and it should be, right? But when I did my research, I found that there are thousands of things that could never possibly harm us, and they're totally irrational. And I have a list of a couple of, there's some weird ones. There's a fear of beards. Uh, there's specific, a fear of specific colors like yellow or purple. There's a fear of the rain. 
I think I know a couple people who have that. Uh, there's, uh, there's a fear of the Pope. There's a fear of navels, like belly buttons, uh, of certain types of cheeses. There's certain types of chins that scare people. Uh, this is my favorite one, fear of being looked at by a duck. That's a real one. That's a, there's actually a name for that. Uh, there's a fear of flowers. <laughs> of flowers. There's even phobophobia, which is living with the fear of developing new fears. So normal fear can be irrational, but what does the Bible say of the fear of the Lord? It says it is the beginning of wisdom. It is not irrational at all. Normal fear can be based on something causing us harm or death. The fear of the Lord knows that we have a loving Father, a sacrificing Messiah, a comforting spirit. Normal fear makes us distrust the object of our fear. Fear of the Lord, because of our sin and our rebellion against God, the fear of the Lord makes us distrust ourselves. Normal fear creates animosity or even disgust for the object of our fear. Fear of the Lord reveals more of the beauty and the magnificence of God. Normal fear can create selfishness. Fear of the Lord makes us generous. Acts 10 talks about Cornelius. It says, who feared God and gave generously to the people. With normal fear, we're always trying to overcome it. We should always be trying to endeavor to embrace the fear of the Lord more because it is so good. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 11 says, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. They delight to fear your name. We're not trying to overcome it. We're trying to embrace it. If there's any awkwardness in this room about the fear of God, It's usually probably because that we're associating normal fear with the fear of the Lord. But God is in, he is unlike anything else that we know of. Of course it's going to be different. It's going to be different because it makes sense. The fear of him would look different. It's going to feel different. It's going to bring about different results than normal fear. In my reading, I stumbled on something that John Piper was saying. He says that he likes to visualize the Lord like this giant storm. It helps him to communicate the fear of the Lord. It helps him to wrap his mind around it. I want to read what he has for you today. He says, I love the picture of a big, holy, sovereign, majestic God. So I picture myself climbing a mountain range, and I'm on these massive rock faces, and I see a storm coming. It's going to be a massive storm and I feel unbelievably vulnerable on these mountain cliffs. And so I am desperately looking for a little covert in the rock where I won't be blown off the side of the cliff to destruction. And I find a hole in the side of the mountain. I spin quickly, and suddenly the holiness and justice and power and wrath and judgment of God breaks over me like a hurricane, but I know I'm totally safe, which means all the horrible danger is transposed into the music of majesty, and I can enjoy it. And I think that, he says, this is what the cross is. Jesus died for us to provide a place where we could enjoy the majesty of God with a kind of fear and trembling and reverence and awe, but not a cowering fear. And when we really dwell on who he is, on how big that he is and how holy that he is and the enormity of this storm that is God, then we feel inferior, don't we? When we compare ourselves to God, we feel inferior, and we should. 
We should feel that way. Proverbs 24.4 says humility is the fear of the Lord. Its wages are riches and honor and life. Feeling inferior when compared to God is not a new thing. It's been going on for thousands of years. In the Bible, there's recorded many times where people have experienced some kind of glory, some kind of manifestation, some kind of a vision of the glory of the Lord, and they, every time, are humbled. Let's look at a few of them. John, in Revelation 4, he sees a vision. He says, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. He's just trying to describe something indescribable. He's doing his best. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength, and when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Isaiah, he sees a vision of the Lord in chapter 6. It says, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one calls out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. Saul soon to be Paul. Suddenly there was a light from heaven shining around him. The only thing, the very first thing that he could do was to fall on the ground. In Job, God speaks. After chapter after chapter of the mutterings and the murmurings of human beings, God finally speaks in like chapter 39, I believe. And this is some of the things that he has to say to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place? Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. And Job's response, behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? Humility is the fear of the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 40, God speaks, and he compares himself again with human beings. And he says, who has measured the oceans by using the palm of his hand? Who has used the width of his hand to mark off the heavens? The heavens something that I've been really into for years and years now. I couldn't get, I can't get enough of reading about space because when I look up at the stars, I just think it's so big, right? It's just so over the top and so interesting. On a dark night, uh, there is approximately three, only 3,000 stars that we see, right? We look up. And we're just amazed by the majesty of the universe, but 3,000 stars is not a picture of our universe. 3,000 stars is but a blip, just a tiny drop in a sea of stars in a spiral galaxy that we call the Milky Way. This Milky Way galaxy 
has somewhere between 300 to 400 billion stars. Billion. It's huge. It's 100,000 light years across, which means if we were to travel at 186,000 miles per second, it would take us 100,000 years to get across it. The Hubble Space Telescope. So scientists have been using it to look outside then of our galaxy to the far reaches of the universe. So Hubble will focus its attention on an area that is the size of a dime, held out 10 feet. That's how small of a space that, we're, that it's looking at at one time. And it's looking outside of our Milky Way, and it takes a picture of this. These are not stars. These are galaxies. And there's a 1,000 of them in that amount of space. And then Hubble turns its attention to another dime-sized area right next to it, takes another picture, and there is another thousand galaxies as big or bigger than the Milky Way. There's approximately then 200 billion galaxies. So how many stars are there in the universe that God has created? It's an astronomical number. It's too big for us to imagine. It's a six followed by 22 zeros. To try to get an idea of what this number is, think of all the sand on the entire planet. It's hard to do, right? You take one cup, just one cup of sand, and one cup is approximately, give or take, two million grains of sand. So think about the entire, how big of a number is all the grains on the entire planet. For every one grain of sand there is, there are 10 stars. If you take a quarter teaspoon, just a tiny quarter teaspoon, and you were to dip that in the cup of sand and pull out, there are more atoms, right? The building blocks of our nature. There are more atoms in that single quarter teaspoon than there are stars in the universe. See, God stretched out the heavens. He spoke and matter was created. The stars, he's named them one by one. When he spoke and they came into existence, he looked at it and he said what? <laughs> it is good that he is not lying. They are good. And that is just the tip of the tip of the iceberg that is creation. And that's just creation. How much more the creator. Like Job, I compare myself with him. And I have to fall on my face. And I have to say, I am of small account. I am a tiny life on a tiny planet in the sea of a creation that is too vast and too big for me to even imagine. And he measures it with the breadth of his hand. See, we waste so much time comparing ourselves to each other and not nearly enough time comparing ourselves to God. It is in comparing ourselves to God we find that we are utterly and completely dependent on him. We are dependent on God for everything. We are dependent on him to knit us together in our mother's womb. Our DNA, our cell structure, every bit depends on him and is sustained by him. It's the air that we breathe. We depend on him for guidance. We depend on him for direction. We depend on him for our daily bread. We depend on him for deliverance, for salvation, for sanctification, for glorification, and ultimately exaltation. Dependence on God brings humility. 
Dependence on ourselves brings pride. And let's face it, dependence on ourselves, that's a lie. Just because we think it does not make it so. We are to work out or display our salvation with this fear and trembling. And what does that look like? Philippians has already showed us. We find it in verse 27 of chapter 1. Live a life worthy of the gospel. We display our salvation by having the same humble attitude as Jesus, being servants to one another. This is chapter 2, verses 3 through 4. We display it by having the mind of Christ, which is chapter 2, verse 5. We display it like we are looking at today in our passage by displaying outwardly the greatness of what God has done in us. Let me ask you this. You take a look at that list. How in the world do we display that kind of greatness? How do we live a life worthy of the, of the gospel? To live a life worthy of what he has done on there, a life worthy of what he has done in us. How do we live that in our lives? How do we have the same attitude as Christ? How do we have the same mind as him? Praise God that he did not stop at verse 12, that he continued in verse 13, and he says, it is God that works in us. Philippians 2.13 says, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. See, we are dependent on God for our salvation, and we are just as dependent on him to work it out. He works in you, and that word work is completely different than the word work that we found in, in verse 12. In 12, the workout salvation is about displaying or bringing to fruition. This work is where we get our word energy from. What he's saying is that God is active. He is energetic in our lives. And he does that in order to make us willing. And that is the idea that we desire then the things of the Lord. We desire humility. We desire unity. It is our desire to flee from sin and to repent. So when Paul says that we should have the mind of Christ and we should have the attitude of Christ, and you're like, well, that is impossible. How can I do that? I can't do that. You're right. You can't do that. We depend on God for that. To desire the things of the Lord comes from the Lord. His work in us doesn't stop with willingness. It says that God works in you to both will and to work. It's exactly the same word as he just used. To be active, to be energetic. He is energetic. He is active in you. So why? So that we are active. When Paul says that we should live a life worthy of the gospel, that we need to display the greatness of what God has done in us, we think, well, that is impossible. We can't do that. And you're absolutely right. We can't do that. We are dependent on God for that as well. It is God that works, and then we are willing. It is God who works, and it's because we are able to work out what he has worked in. As that, is how, uh, that, that is how we display that. And that is our something to know. As God works in you, work it out. As always, a good something to know should lead us towards something to do. But in order to get to something to do, we need to ask ourselves a question. Why? Why does he work in us? So that we can just be jellyfish, floating around, being tossed to and fro by any wave or current, hoping that God does something through us? To let go and just let God in hopes that he somehow influences the world around us 
Is his workmanship in us to be hidden? No, it is to be displayed. Does he make us willing so that we can be apathetic? No. Does he energize and empower us so that we can just sit and float? No, it is for action. His activity, his grace, his spirit, these are given to us. Not to put aside our own efforts, but to excite them. It is for action. It is for good works. It is to fight the good fight. It is to run the good race. It is for his purposes. And the Bible says when we do this, when we live those things out, he delights in us as his children. He delights in us because of our obedience to him, which then that brings us to something to do. Identify a specific area of your life where God is working in you right now and determine how you will cooperate with him this week. Let me ask you, is God nudging you about anything? Our job this week is to perk up and to respond. Is he calling you to something or is he calling you to someone? Then our job this week is to say, here am I. Send me. Is he convicting you about pride or some kind of a sin in our lives? Our job this week is to cast these things off and to run to him. Is he revealing an attitude of Christ that is lacking in some way in our relationships? Then our job this week is to clothe ourselves with those, to keep those things at the forefront of our minds and display that attitude in this room. And as we go, we display those things at our jobs, in our schools, in our community, in our homes. We started by looking at Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and I'd like to close us with that as well. Let's read it again. It says, for by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But if we continue on to verse 10, it has powerful applications for our passage today. Verse 10 says, for we are his, what? His masterpiece, his work of art, his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so that who we are because of what Jesus has done in us, who we are can be shown in what we do. With fear and with trembling, we cooperate with the God of the universe to work out what he works in. Let's pray. Father, we talk with you now because we know we need you. Jesus, you told the disciples in the garden that they should pray and they should keep watch because the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And we pray to you now, we tell you that we are weak. But you are mighty. You are God Almighty. And you know us by name and you love us. And we can do all things through you because you give us strength. And we welcome, we absolutely welcome your power in us. Help us to glorify you with our obedience. Help us to live a life worthy of the gospel and a life worthy of the masterpiece that you have created in us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.